welcome to the 19th ESC Every Soldier Counts podcast. Wherever you find American troops today, you'll find the men of the Transportation Corps. Enough and on time. That's the story we tell you today. The story of the Army Quartermaster Corps. These youthful servicemen are members of the Army's Military Police Corps. One of the most important forces behind the lines. The Army Ordnance Corps. Bell has sounded and we are off with our second three-way dance of the night. One fall to a finish as that man, Mason Hunter, will face his partner, Derek Stone. And the newcomer, the debuting rookie, Mike DiBiase, son of the legendary million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Welcome to the 19th ESC Every Soldier Counts podcast. Once again, I am Staff Sergeant Adam Ross, Public Affairs NCOIC here at 19th Expeditionary Sustainment Command. And on this episode, we have the most hard-hitting episode of Every Soldier Counts podcast yet because we are joined by Lieutenant Colonel David Hunter from our G33 section who has a very interesting story to tell that involves, yes, professional wrestling. Sir, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here. Okay, so let's uh, let's get right into it, sir. We got um, a lot of uh, twists in your story to tell. Um, but before you were you, before you were in the army, before you were in the air force, you were wrestling. In uh, did it start for you in high school? Where, where did it start? Um, it actually, uh, my amateur wrestling career started really um, in middle school. Um, our our city had like a an, like a like a middle school wrestling program. It was kind of, it wasn't really in depth. You'd roughly train and then for about a month and then you'd actually wrestle the other middle schools in like a, you know, like a four person bracket for each person. Um, But that was pretty much it. And then I didn't wrestle my freshman year in high school, but I ended up going out my sophomore year and stuck to it um, after that. So, and so at what point were you like one of the bigger kids or were you ever one of the bigger kids on the, on the squad? I, I was, um, when I actually went out for wrestling as a sophomore, um, I wrestled heavyweight. Which heavyweight at that time was up to 275. It was like 190 to 275. I weighed 193 pounds. And now people ask, well, how the heck could you, why didn't you just cut weight to go down to 189? Well, our 189 pounder at that time was a phenomenal athlete, and I, I couldn't last more than like a minute with him. Um, but I actually ended up, after my sophomore year, I, you know, I definitely took my lumps. I gave away a lot of weight. But I actually really enjoyed it, especially in those matches that you end up winning. I was like, you know what, I'm going to stick to this. And I continued to wrestle heavyweight, you know, from my junior year, senior year, as well as when I ended up wrestling in the service and in college. Okay, and so um, you took your wrestling career to college. What was what was the step up in competition like with that? Oh, it was just, you know, I was a good wrestler in high school. I was a two-time state tournament qualifier. Um, but I went to college, you know, state champions are dime a dozen. I mean, it's just a whole different level. Um, you know, full disclosure, I definitely lost more matches than I won in college. Uh, in fact, I'd, my overall record, as I recall, was 12 and 22 over the three seasons that I wrestled in college. So it was, you know, it was definitely a big uh, step up. But you never let that discourage you or slow you down? Oh, no. I mean, I, I really enjoyed doing it. And it was just it was one of those things I was very honored to have that ability um, to wrestle in college um, as it was also my honor to wrestle in the military when I, I know we'll get to this. But, you know, when I was enlisted in the army, 
Um, I, I tried out for the all army wrestling team. I made it to the second to last cut. And then once I get, got commissioned in the air force, I was actually on the all air force wrestling team in 2005. And so, so your enlisted career, did that predate your pro wrestling career? So you, you were, you were, you were in national guard or, or why well, was, uh, I started, I started doing professional wrestling. Um, when I was in the National Guard. Um, prior, I, I came initially active for about two and a half years right out of high school. Um, and then I got out, went to college, was wrestling in college. Um, it was in the National Guard as well. And then after wrestling for three years in college, I took my opportunity and I wanted to become a professional wrestler and then I kept doing it. I started when I was enlisted in the National Guard and did it through my first couple of years as an officer in the Air Force as well as in the Army. And so we know there's no professional wrestling draft. There's no, like, is there, how do you become, how do you start your career as a professional wrestler? Well, I ended up going to get trained. Um, but on my behind it, after I had, uh, you know, done my third season in college, I was home visiting some friends and we decided to go to an actual, uh, what you would call an independent show, which is what like a minor league show. And at the, you know, about midpoint of the show, um, a guy came out and said, Hey, we're, we have a wrestling school. If anybody's interested, please let us know. So, I ended up, you know, I signed up to do it, to go through the training. Um, one of my friends signed up to go through the training. And, you know, approximately three months later, I made my debut um, in a battle royal. And then the next month, I actually had a singles match. And then probably about maybe three or four months later, uh, my trainer signed off and said that I was completely certified. And so we're, we're watching um, a clip of one of your pro wrestling days. This is when you're a pretty seasoned uh, pro wrestler at this point, right, sir? I'd say that. I mean, you can always, uh, you know, you can always learn more, as you say. So as we're watching this, contrast the the wrestler who just had graduated from the the pro wrestling school and, and what we're watching here. Um, I would say I definitely uh, had came along quite substantially. I know when I first went out there, it was, when I first started wrestling, um, I was just trying to go in there and hit cool moves. You know, it was like playing a video game. Um, but you eventually learned how to tell a story and you understand it's not about you. It's about the fans. It's about making your opponent look good as well as telling that story. It's the whole psychology of the wrestling game, if that makes sense. And this and just for clarity, what what wrestling league were you in? What, what, um... Well, this uh, this video right here is from Central States Wrestling. They used to promote shows in vicinity of Missouri and Kansas. Um, but yeah, that's what it, you know, over my career, I probably wrestled for approximately 40 different promotions. You know, some were like fly by night and maybe do two shows. Other ones lasted for years. Um, so. Yeah, and this one, um, there's maybe like 30, 40 people there. But no, I'd say probably this one, there's probably about 100. At this oh, okay, one. we're just seeing. But you, you just in a variety of venues, you know, around the country. Right? And so, what were, did you have to unlearn some of the, the habits that you had developed, you know, as a successful. Um, Greco-Roman wrestler? I uh, know. Um, actually, it's kind of interesting that you say that. So when I actually took time off to go try off the All-Air Force team, uh, one of my biggest problems I had was when people would try to throw me, I would actually post and jump for them. <laughs> so it was just like my coach at the time was like, we got to break you of that habit. <laughs> you know, we got to break you of the habit. Um, but one of the things that it did as far as for breaking the habits from amateur wrestling, you just have to avoid being stiff. You have to make sure you're helping your opponent. You're not out there to try to hurt your opponent you're trying to you're trying to entertain the fans and make your opponent look good as well as he's out there to make you look good 
Um, but one of the big changes, oh, okay, and we're just seeing you throwing someone back in the ring there. Uh, one, one of the changes, though, was you were no longer David Hunter when you stepped into the ring. You were Mason Hunter. So what was your, your ring personality like, your persona like at this point? Um, well, it all depended upon sometimes, it depended on where I was wrestling. Sometimes I'd be a face, which was a good guy. Sometimes I'd be a heel. So it all depended upon, you know, what promotion I was working in. The big thing that I was always known for um, was always a very intense guy. You know, that was, a, that was a thing, whether I was a heel or whether I was a face. But I would also try to incorporate a little bit of comedy um, into my matches wherever you could, you know, which I know there's a part coming up here with the airplane spin spot that I always like doing mm -hmm. where I give the ref an airplane spin and I try to pin the ref. And then my, one of my opponents actually counts to three and then attacks me. It was something I did in a lot of my matches just to throw that comic relief in there. Mm. And here it comes. Oh, yeah, sp spinning him around. This guy probably took this from me about maybe 20 to 30 times. <laughs> I always love this spot. And so here comes the ref. He's like, check it on me. Since he touched me first, it's all fair game. And then you have Mike DiBiase come three. <laughs> I think I won. So I we, I won. We, we just watched Mason Hunter count out the... The, pin the ref and the ref got counted out <laughs> okay and so this you know you're playing off the crowd you know it's it's a it's entertainment you know did, where did that like theatrical element was that always there for you or where did the i know uh, truth be told um i actually didn't get into acting until uh, my junior year in high school um it was just i kind of got discovered because i didn't play football so it was just i was you know looking for something to do and then our theater director they were Believe it or not, they were like uh, casting for their, the high school version of Robin Hood, and they looked at me for Little John. Well, it turned out I wasn't really, I didn't look nice enough to be Little John, so I ended up being this guy named Guy of Gisborne, and this was like a barbarian. I'm different storylines they have Guy of Gisborne, but I was bigger than Little John, to be completely honest. So I, that's how I got into acting. And, and so the, the time on the stage, do you think that translated to the ring? It did. It definitely, the persona, I mean, it's just you understand how to you know, get your emotions out there, and plus, I. I didn't have the stage fright. Yeah, that's that's a big part of it for sure. Um, and so we're watching you in this clip. You have the Air Force, kind of the Air Force logo on your, on your cost in your pants. So at this point, you were an Air Force lieutenant. Is that right? That is correct. So you you did some time in the Army and National Guard, and then uh, tell me about what brought you to the Air Force. Then. Well, um, I, I came in initially in the Army for two and a half years, and I was in the National Guard for five years, as I stated. Then nine eleven happened. And I wanted to get back into the military to serve my country because I felt our country had been attacked, which it had been. And uh, at the time, I was thinking about going to OCS or applying for sorry, OTS for the Air Force, as it's called. Um, but then I found out that Air Force had an ROTC program. So I, I ended up going into the, you know, doing Air Force ROTC. Um, and then I was eventually commissioned. And bottom line behind it is when it comes to the Air Force and the Navy, they do this every couple of years, they downsize. So I had almost four years in the Air Force as an officer, and the Army just told me about the Blue to Green program. I already had so many years in the military. I wanted to continue my career, so I crossed over. Back, I crossed back over into the Army. Yeah, I remember um, seeing. You used to see those ads kind of on AFN do the Blue to Green. Um, that's so you. But you left the the Air Force as a lieutenant, and you entered the Army as as a as a captain. I was about two months from. I already had my promotion orders for the Air Force um, when I crossed over. And they immediately said, congratulations, you are a captain now. And truth be told, 
I said, well, shouldn't I probably be a lieutenant for a little bit longer just so I can learn how to be in you know, a better leader in the army. Cause there's obviously there's a big, we're all the same, you know, we're all in the U S service, but there's definitely a little bit of a difference in the way, um, different military, different services, uh, you know, conduct their leadership, so to speak. Luckily you already had several years of time in the army, so it probably wasn't too tough a transition for you. No, I mean, that's, I came over with several other people from the air force. Um, they were prior, a couple of them were prior enlisted air force. So it was definitely a little bit of a wake up call. So at least I had a decent understanding of how the army worked. And at that time, post 9-11, they're, you know, super high op tempo. Is, was it at that point that you're kind of starting to leave your, your wrestling career behind, or was there still time for it? No, I was still doing it. Um, my first year after I crossed over, um, I crossed over in 2000, November 2006. I actually ended up retiring from professional wrestling in October of uh, 2007. So, I mean, the military has always been really supportive of me doing the various leadership. You know, they understood that I was trained to become a professional wrestler. And I was never going to go out there and do something to make the military look bad. And I always tried to avoid getting hurt as much as possible. Obviously, I'd show up with bumps and bruises and cuts, but, you know, nothing that was going to bring disservice on the military. Okay, and we're going to talk more about your military career when we come back from this break. Stay with us here on the Every Soldier Counts podcast. Hi, this is Major Victoria Camary, 19th ESC Deputy Staff Judge Advocate. Even though you are serving your country overseas, legal issues may still arise which require your immediate attention. Soldier Family Legal Services, previously referred to as the Legal Assistance Office, is here to help. Call DSN 763-4423 or contact the SFLS Facebook page to schedule an appointment with the new Soldier Family Legal Services attorney, Captain L. Ross. Soldier Family Legal Services is located in Building 1805 on Camp Henry, next to Gate 1. Soldier Family Legal Services is open to service members, dependents, retirees, and contractors whose contract provides logistics support. Service members, dependents, and retirees only need to bring their military ID. Contractors need to bring their ID card and a copy of their 700-19. Soldier Family Legal Services can assist with notaries, powers of attorney, SOFA stamps, alien registration cards, work permission for English instructors, permanent resident visa or green cards, and citizenship. Soldier Family Legal Services can also assist with questions regarding divorce, separation agreements, family support under AR 608-99, early return of dependents, passports, international marriages, and most other legal issues you may have. Soldier Family Legal Services is here for you. Call DSN 763-4423 to set up an appointment today. Welcome back to the 19th ESC Every Soldier Counts podcast. Again, I'm Staff Sergeant Adam Ross. We're talking today with Lieutenant Colonel David Hunter. Um, Sir, going back to your, stepping back a little bit with your Air Force career, you wrestled for the All-Air Force wrestling team. Uh, what, What was that experience like for you? I mean, it was a great experience. Um, I did that in 2005. Um, the big thing is when I ended up going to it, I mean, it was approximately two months long that I was, you know, I wrestled for them all the way through the Armed Forces Championships, and then I ended up getting injured um, shortly thereafter. Um, but that's all we did. I mean, it was, we went on a three-day cycle, so you'd have a really intense day, and then you'd start to taper off, and then usually on, like, your fourth day, they'd t- get it off, or you'd have a really light workout, and you'd start the cycle um, all over again. But it was a 
it was pretty intense. I mean, I lost a lot of weight. I ended up showing up there approximately 237 pounds. And by the time I left, I was 223 pounds. I was shredded, you know, as far as for losing weight. But just the problem was I was wrestling heavyweight. So our coach at the time, coach Richard Strait, he was, they were trying to feed me everything. But it just, I couldn't keep any weight on because of all the practices. And so at that time, in that group, were you the only one with professional experience wrestling? Or did, what did the other, like maybe the younger wrestlers think of when they heard you did pro professional circuit? Um, uh, they, a lot of them joked about it. You know, a lot of them, you know, they were, most of them were pretty supportive. They were, I, you know, I brought a couple of videos. They were watching and laughing about it and stuff along those lines. But this is definitely during the, you know, the initial UFC craze. You know, it was really taking off at that time. So, you know. But you know, they were most of them were supportive of it. And so, you, how did you use that, like that competitive? That you spent years competing at a high level. How did you take that into your military career? You know, that kind of thirst for competitiveness and winning. Well, I think I want to say it wasn't as much winning because you really, I mean, especially for as a pro wrestler, the thing that I took across into being an amateur, you know, as well as from my amateur days to being an officer, is the fact that it's not about you; it's about the organization. So for pro wrestling, people like to say it's your ego. It's all about you. It's like, no, you're out there to entertain the fans. You're out there to tell a story, and you're out there to make your opponent look good. So when I look at it from that perspective, the thing I took over is it's always to make the unit look good. It's always there to support the organization. It's not about me. Now, I came over when I was in the Air Force. I was a 37 Foxtrot, which is a personal and manpower version of AG. When I initially crossed over, I actually came over as an air defender. And then I, you know, I did the transition approximately like maybe 15 to 16 months later um, into being an MI officer. Okay, and so and so you're still an MI officer, sir. So um, we talked with uh, Chief Carl um, a couple weeks ago, who's, who's done that his uh, his whole career. Uh, what, what can you say about the being? I know you can't say that much, but um, being in the MI community, being an MI officer, what, what's been your experience with that? Well, I enjoyed it. Um, bottom line behind it is the key thing about being an MI officer is you really get a deep understanding about what's going on in the world, and you also realize that what your role is out there. You're, we're paid to actually provide our recommendations and do our assessments. So you know, if, we, if we're not doing that, um, then we're definitely failing. So that's the one of the, one of the big things I would like to say that I, you know, I get out of it. And so right now you are in your, the G33 um, current operations. What did you, um, how, did, how did it being MI help you with, with what, how you described MI? How did this help, that help you with your current position? Uh, bottom line behind it is I know um, it's, in, you know, you build up an actual rapport with like various organizations. So it, it allows you to reach, you know, reach out also writing. And you do a lot of writing and a lot of briefing. So I, I mean, as an MI officer, we're constantly being told to stand up and brief. So as the G33, I'm always willing to get up there and, you know, provide my, my two cents. And it's also important as an MI officer that you build the bench, so to speak. So one of the things that I do frequently as a result of that is I ensure that um, everybody in my section has the capability to brief at any given time. So we groom other personnel so it's not just about me, it's other people. And speaking of briefing, how would you brief someone what the G33 is? I know not everyone listening has heard that term before. It's the current operations section for you know for the organization. Um, we're responsible for all that short, all the short-term planning. I would say something that's going to be happening in you know, less than 30 days. Um, we're the ones that you know produce. We produce a lot of the the operations orders. Uh, we disseminate all that information. Uh, we manage the the commander's update briefs. Uh, currently, we are managing the COVID nineteen 
tracking effort for 19th ESC. Um, yeah, it's pretty much anything that's you know, short term. You know, you have your, your future ops, which is basically from anything past you know, 30 days. And staying on that COVID-19 topic, sir, um, a lot of our guests, you know, have, have been here, you know, from the, the beginning of the pandemic. So, yeah, what, what's been your experience like being so um, kind of ground zero and helping with that effort, preventing the spread of it? Well, I mean, I, I'd say the best part about it is the fact that the success story that's been over here in Korea. I mean, I know, you know it was, it's a different story back in different story back in the United States. We were in fact ground zero for you know when the COVID COVID nineteen broke out here. Daegu was really really bad, so it was just interesting to see how the first reports came out and like and how we adapted when it actually really started to break out here. And everybody nineteenth ESC nineteenth ESC four stepped up to ensure they were doing a comprehensive effort in order to prevent the spread and assist the rock government in tracking this information. So. And um, we'll put these pictures on social media, sir. So look, looking over here, so this is some some of your best um, mementos, souvenirs from your, your, your hardware, basically, from your wrestling career. Um, what can you tell us about the? Take us through these belts here. What can you tell us about? Them? Okay, so starting up at the top is the NWA Western States title. So I just want to stress this: when I was a kid, um, one of the very first belts that I ever remember seeing um, was the NWA Western States belt. Um, only two people ever actually held it: Larry Zbysko and Barry Windham. And it was just to me that's always, always the most beautiful belt in the world. So when I actually, once I got commissioned. Um, I actually decided I was going to actually get into belt collecting, and that was the you know one of the first belt that I actually bought, and it's just to me it's still the most beautiful belt that I've ever seen. I know it doesn't mean a lot to other people, but in my opinion, it's just something I remember as a kid, and I'm just very honored to have something like a piece of memorabilia like that. Um, below that is the uh, World Class Heavyweight Championship. Um, now, I grew up in WWF territory. I mean, I'll just be completely honest with that. I did. Um, I didn't really like WWF very much, though, to be honest. Um, my dad, um, he grew up watching um, the, the original Sheik Eddie for Hots, Big Time Wrestling, as well as Dick the Bruiser of the World Wrestling Association. And he told me that there are a lot of other wrestling companies out there. And so he got me into watching ESPN, basically every type of wrestling you know, man, so on ESPN, you had world-class championship wrestling based out of Dallas and the AWA based out of Minnesota. And I, my favorite company to watch as a kid was world-class championship wrestling. So when I think of the heavyweight championship, that I think is the, my favorite to look at. It was always the world-class um, heavyweight title. Um, and then below that, um, starting over there to the left side, um, is the actual world-class tag team title. So it's time, both those are tied to my favorite company as a kid. And then to the right is the NWA US tag title. Um, I always enjoyed tag teams, you know, a little bit more than I enjoyed watching singles wrestling as a kid. And my favorite tag team of all time was the Minute Express. They held that title probably more than anybody else did. So I, when I saw an opportunity to pick up a replica, um, I did. So. So if someone goes into your office, or you know, a lot of uh, senior officers, they have they have plaques, they have guidons. Maybe you have wrestling championship wrestling belts, and the one we also have on the table here is a special one for you. Can you tell us about this one? Oh yeah, so this was a when I transitioned from the G two um, to the G three three, the G two, and they gave me a special gift. It was an actual, it's an actual championship belt that they ordered. Um, it says undisputed champion has nineteenth ESC's. Um, Sim, uh, symbol on it, you know, the coat of arms, so to speak. Um, so it was just, it was definitely something that I was not expecting, but I was definitely honored. It's probably the nicest gift I've actually got from, you know, a military organization. So. And let's talk about your time here in Korea a little bit. So you came here 
with your wife, um, who's a battalion commander. So what what is what has that been like uh, being here? Um, oh, coming on two years in Korea. Yep, as of as of this as of the end of this month, it have been two years. So what are some of your best memories here being in Korea? Well, bottom line behind it is it's just you know, Korea. This is my third time in Korea. I've always enjoyed my time in Korea. Uh, just the people. People are always really, you know, really nice, and have the ch- opportunities to actually go on tour. Not as much as we've done the previous times we've been here, um, but just having the opportunity to go and travel around the country has been uh, phenomenal. And just whenever we get the opportunity to work with our our, our counterparts in the rock military, is always a blessing as well. And was this your first time in Area Four? No, um, it's actually my third, uh, no, my second time. My first time I was over in Korea, I was stationed at uh, Camp Carroll. Um, last time I was here, I was stationed at Camp Humphreys, and so now I'm back here at Camp Henry. So. That was the old uh, MI brigade on, on Carroll? No, I was actually in 144 ADA, um, which was, a, they did the rotations at the time, um, where 2-1 is currently, we actually replaced 2-1 you know, when they were doing those rotations. And so, uh, what, what's next for you, sir? You've been you've, already, you've been here for a while. Um, are you heading back to the states soon, or do you, can you say where you're going next? Uh, absolutely, I'm heading back to Fort Bliss um, at the end of June. I depart here in late June. I'm showing up in you know, probably like mid to late July, and I'm going over there to, to be roughly the garrison XO um, for Fort Bliss. Back to uh, air defense country. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And so, um, what about, we, we talked about wrestling with Sawyer Belts. Is there any chance you would ever go back to that life? No, I'll be completely honest. Um, I've, I realize, you know, my age, I'm just going to be, you know, I'm very happy. I, you know, I didn't escape without any injuries, obviously, from pro wrestling as well as amateur wrestling. Um, but I realize that age is a factor. The mutant healing factor is gone. And I've been offered, you know, people have asked me to get back into it. And I'm just, you know. It's too important. My military career is too important to me as well as my health for my family. So, but I do I do still enjoy watching a lot of the old school professional wrestling. And so you talked about your dad kind of getting you into interested in wrestling. What about your son? Is he, has the bug bitten him yet at all? Or? Oh no, he's only he's only three years old. Um, <laughs> thankfully, he hasn't. You know, thankfully, he hasn't really uh, you know gotten too much into it. Um, the interesting thing is that he does watch world class with me occasionally, and uh, the two things that he imitates. You know, occasionally is the, the dreaded Von Erich Iron Claw. You say Iron Claw, I'll put it on your head. Um, as well as Kamala the Ugandan Giant, who was one of my favorites as a kid. So he, he actually imitate Kamala, which is really funny. Hopefully you know how to defend it. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, thanks so much for coming by the studio, sir. Um, good luck in your, your travels to Fort Bliss, and I appreciate you telling us about your wrestling career. Thank you very much. Don't forget, if you haven't subscribed yet, make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss one episode of the Every Soldier Counts podcast. We'll talk to you next time here on the Every Soldier Counts podcast.